Today on Abounding Grace, we discover that sometimes Jesus sends us into a storm. You know, when you think of storms, there are storms in life. Effectiveness comes to you and me as a believer through the storms of life. We learn a lot about ourselves. We learn a lot about God. We get a, gain a lot of maturity in our response to difficult times, to tests, to trials, to storms. And there are storms in this life. Everyone goes through them. Sometimes they're brought on by our own sin. Sometimes they're brought on by another person's sin. Many times they're brought on just because of the sin that's in the world. We're in a fallen world, and we have to deal with the sin that's in the world. But today I want to show you that sometimes God sends us into the storm. Sometimes storms are from the Lord. This is amazing grace. This is Storms come and go in our lives, but what you may not realize is sometimes Jesus sends us into a storm for a very good reason, much like he did for the disciples in the passage before us. Today on Abounding Grace, we'll see a storm breakout in the Sea of Galilee. It was a test of faith to see if they would trust God to protect them. Let's see what we can take away from this as we join Pastor Ed Taylor in John chapter 6. Take your Bibles, open them. To John's Gospel, chapter 6, we'll pick up where we left off in our study last time. We're following the footsteps of Jesus. We're being discipled ourselves by watching him and listening to him, by learning from him, and through the Holy Spirit teaching us how to apply these things into our lives today. Chapter 6 opens up with a compassionate Savior. 5,000 men counted, could have been as many as 10,000, 15,000 people if there were women and children there. They're hungry, and they're following Jesus because they're hungry, because they've seen the signs and the things that he's done. And while the disciples are saying, send them away, Jesus' heart is breaking, and out of compassion, he invites and involves the disciples in a tremendous miracle where according to John chapter 6, from a few loaves, a few barley loaves, kind of like biscuit type bread, and a couple small fish, maybe the size of sardines or not much bigger, all of these thousands of people were not just fed, but it says in verse 11, they had as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, verse 12, they had so much more than they even expected Jesus set up a buffet for them to physically meet their needs and they had as much as they wanted and they were overflowingly filled. And there was also that kid, that kid that gave his lunch up. It wasn't much. It probably wasn't even enough to fill him and make him full, just his few little pieces of bread and a couple of fish. But when he gave everything that he had, he didn't give a couple pieces of bread and maybe one fish. He gave everything that he had. You know what he was, the blessing for him is that when he gave everything, he was given so much. He was given back not only what he gave, but so much more. And we learned how important it was to give ourselves 
to Jesus, I think that's going to be a theme that you see over and over again. As a matter of fact, as I'm studying this again, I mean, I've studied through John. We've even taught through it before here at the church many years ago. I'm studying through it again fresh and taking fresh notes with fresh eyes. A couple of things I've picked up on that I haven't picked up on before. The first one with Jesus, I'm watching his life and I'm watching him go from desperate situation to desperate situation to desperate situation. It seems to be one of the tools that God uses to get people's attention to turn them back to the things of God. Situations that are outside of their control. I mean, you remember, the first thing I saw that was at the pools of Bethesda. Remember how difficult that must have been. There was just a bunch of sick, hurting people that were there moaning and groaning, waiting for the movement of the water, that they might be the one person that gets healed when the water moves. And Jesus enters right into that desperation and heals that man, tells him to take up his mat and walk. And there was that whole controversy of the Sabbath and such that we learned from. Then he moves from this, that, that desperate situation to the feeding of the 5,000. Now, they're desperate in a different way. They're hungry. They're tired. They have practical needs. They're met by, like, probably other spiritual leaders. Just send them away. We don't have time. We don't have enough resources. We can't help them. And Jesus enters in right into the desperate situation of their own hunger. I mean, it's not like they're starving or anything, but they're hungry. It's been a long day. It's been a long time. And Jesus meets them and satisfies them. I've seen that. And I think you're going to see, I think we're going to see that unfold throughout the gospel of John. Just one desperate situation after another. And Jesus meeting needs uh, in order to draw attention to himself. And the other thing that I notice is that the disciples. So we take our eyes off of Jesus for a minute. And we put it on to the disciples and those that were following Jesus. You know what I see the movement in their life? From test to test to test to test. It's different. The tests are different. The lessons are different. But as we've seen in previous studies, every situation is a discipleship opportunity. It's a discipleship moment. We need to learn to embrace the moments. I I teach the guys here. I try to teach the leaders here. Uh, I myself practice this to take every situation and find a spiritual lesson, a discipleship moment that we might grow up in the things of God. As we continue to grow up in the things of God and the movement, and maybe in your own studies, you're seeing things and patterns that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to you. So these 15,000 people are satisfied miraculously. Even the kid that offered everything got not only what he gave back, but he got more abundantly more and exceedingly more than you could even think or ask. If you can compare the question in John chapter 6, it says Jesus lifted up his eyes Seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said, Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Compare that with verse 13. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. The question was, what are we going to do? And the end result was they did, there was so much done that there was leftovers. And the disciples, it says they took up 12 baskets. There's 12 disciples. I, say, I think it's safe to say that each disciple walked away with a basket, reminding them of the faithfulness of God, while at the same time reminding them that they could use a faith boost, trusting Jesus at his word. And they don't send people away. Instead, they're walking away with these baskets of God's faithfulness. In our study 
Uh, in First Samuel, we learned that it's important for us to set up these Ebenezer stones in our lives, points of remembrance of God's faithfulness, because God's faithfulness in the past will encourage us for any future issue that we have, any present condition that we have. We're like, okay, we're setting up these stones so that we're remembering that God is faithful, that he'll meet us where we're at. He'll meet every need. He'll bless and encourage. And the thing I see too in John 6 uh, before we carry on with the, rest, with the next section, is that God wants to touch people. He wants to help people. He wants to serve people. He wants to meet human needs so that through the meeting of human needs, he will draw people to true salvation. Now, for a hungry person that doesn't have a relationship with God, their greatest problem is not hunger. It's a lack of relationship with God. Man's greatest issue is sin. And what the devastation that sin brings. But with man's greatest issue comes God's greatest solution. He sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to take the judgment upon himself. But does that mean we ignore hunger? Of course not. There is much to be said about the gospel working out in the, the social realm. So we don't neglect hunger in order to preach the gospel. No, it's very effective to meet the need of hunger and preach the gospel after the need's been met in Jesus' name. We see that as a pattern from Jesus himself. Not only does he want to help people and draw them to true salvation, he wants us to be a part of it. He wants you to be a part of it. Not because he needs us. He doesn't. But because he loves us. And out of his love, he wants us to engage in what he's doing on the earth today. You know, the Bible says... In Acts chapter 17, verse 25, speaking of God, Paul is saying, human hands can't serve God's needs because he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need there is. And what it comes down to is simply this. We can come to the Lord wherever we're at and whatever we have. For example, there'll be times when we come to, the, to God and we say, I don't have much to offer you. I don't have great talent. I don't have great skills. I'm actually even made a mess of my life. But I'm willing to offer you what I have. I'm willing to offer you myself. Here are my resources. Here's my time. Here's my ability. And even my future, God, I give them all to you. You know what? That kind of commitment, God will use that. God's looking for that. It reminds us of Romans chapter 12, doesn't it? Where in the New King James, it talks about us presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. It is a reasonable thing for you to commit yourself to the things of God. It is a reasonable thing for you to respond to the love of God by living a life of obedience and surrender. It's a reasonable thing for you to hear the word of God and obey it. It's a reasonable thing for you not to take matters into your own hands, but to trust in the Lord and submit yourself to him. It's a reasonable thing that you present your body and your time and your talents and everything. It's very reasonable, which then would lead to us to say that it's unreasonable for you to hold back on God. It's unreasonable for you to hear a Bible study and not respond to it. It's unreasonable for you to say, you know, I'll follow God, but I'll follow you on my terms. It doesn't work that way. We follow God on his terms. In the New Living Translation, they translate Romans chapter 12, verse 1 this way. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will accept. When you think of what he's done for you, is this too much to ask? 
And it's not too much to ask. Bring what you have and watch God not only work with you, but miraculously so much more that there's even leftovers of how he's used you in his life. Now, with that in mind, let's pick up where we left off in verse 14 of John chapter 6. It says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who's come into the world. Now, there is a technicality in that statement where they're recognizing that this is the Messiah sent by God. They're acknowledging that. They're getting it. This is the prophet. This is the one we've expected. Now, they might have had in their mind Elijah. There's a thought that Elijah would be sent as Messiah. But this is, this is a statement in their limited understanding that Messiah has come. That God's promised Savior has arrived. But here's the problem. There was a mix-up in their mind of the coming of Messiah. Under the reign of Rome, the Jewish people were very much kicking at the goads. They didn't like Rome. They didn't like being under Rome's rulership. They didn't like Rome telling them what to do. They didn't like it at all. And in their minds, they interpreted the scriptures that Messiah would come to remove the Roman rule, to break the yoke of Rome, to overthrow the government. And institute a kingdom that Messiah would rule over. And they had mistakenly thought that Jesus came to overthrow the Roman government. To wear a golden crown. But they had missed so clearly that yes, Jesus will come as conquering king. But before he comes as conquering king, he will come as the suffering servant. A gold crown he would not wear first. But instead a crown of thorns twisted into his head hanging on a cross, dying for the sins of the world. So when they refer to him, the prophet, there's a charged up excitement and anticipation, especially around the Passover, which we know, according to verse four, the Passover's near. So they're all thinking, this is, man, this is the, when's the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world? We're waiting for him. And now that he's here and he's demonstrating, oh, he's here. Now notice verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, why? Because they wanted him to overthrow Rome. He departed again to a mountain by himself alone. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. And when the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. Verse 20. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now in John chapter 6, in the beginning section, the feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned in all four Gospels. Remember, there are four Gospels, what we refer to as the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what are known as the synoptic Gospels. S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C. The word literally means to, to say the same things. They cover basically the same events in Jesus' life from different perspectives written to different audiences. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is not a synoptic gospel 
Instead, he highlights different things, including some that were in the other Gospels, to, to bring to us, the reader, to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing him, you might be saved. This particular walking on water is mentioned in three of the Gospels. Matthew chapter 14. Turn over there with me and hold your finger there because we're going to use that. And also Mark chapter 6. And from these other passages, we get insights of what's going on here. For example, John doesn't mention it, but, but Matthew does. This is when Peter walked on the water, where he was called out and he took the steps. I mean, he took his eye off the Lord and he sunk in the storm, but he walked on water. I mean, I, I want to give the brother some credit. Have you walked on water lately? <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. He always gets a rough deal about, well, you took your eyes off the Lord. Man, he took some steps on water. He just had his eyes on the Lord for at least for a couple steps. That's amazing. Amazing. Okay, so pick up with me from Matthew. He's going to add a few things for us. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side. And he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening had come, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And it was in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Verse 18 back. Now hold your places in Matthew. You can just put a little paper there or something. But in John chapter 6 verse 18, we see the same thing. This great wind was blowing. Matthew says the boat's tossed, the waves, the wind's contrary. There's a wind blowing there on the Sea of Galilee. Now when you think of the Sea of Galilee up in the northern part of Israel, think of it more as a, it's, it's a lake. It's a lake that's about 15 miles by 8 miles. 15 miles long, 8 miles wide. It's about 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by mountains. Not mountains as you would think of the Rocky Mountains, but a couple thousand feet mountains. There you can see them all spread around. And there's a canyon on one side of the Sea of Galilee where the winds get whipped up through that canyon and come down on the sea and whip up the waves. They've seen waves uh, in the feet size and just wild, crazy, ocean-like activity on this little sea of Galilee. As a matter of fact, a couple years ago, the week before we got to our tour in Israel, uh, we, there was a storm on the Sea of Galilee, very similar to this. And the boat that we normally take out into the Sea of Galilee for our time of worship and, and that experience on the, on the Sea of Galilee, they, they showed us where they have these wooden things um, that they tie the ropes on, on on the edges. And I'm sure there's a technical word for them, but let's just think of the wooden things. They're about this big. Uh, they're on the side. They're huge. They're, they're huge. They, they showed us where one, the storm was so big that it just snapped off. And it was still there. They, had just, they were fixing it. The other ones were still there. It just snapped off because of the craziness of the storm that had come. Now, uh, by the time we went out on the Sea of Galilee last year and this year, it was like calmy glass, you know, very calm, which generally it's a very calm place. But storms to be whipped up is not unusual even to this day. And for the very seasoned fishermen, the storm was so great, more than we can imagine, because it made them afraid. They were fearful. This was a scary time for them. They were in the midst of a storm. A great wind was blowing. And God was leading them here to a different type of test. They went from the test of faith and trusting God to provide now to a test of faith and trusting God to protect them and guard them and that Jesus would fulfill his word 
and meet them and be there for them. Now he went up, he sent them across, but he goes up to pray. Why do we face tests again? Well, remember, we face tests because God uses them to mature us. God moves, moves, uh, uses them to move us forward in our progress and our faith. It, every time a test comes, it's designed to develop our faith. It's designed to draw us closer to him and to want him more than we want anything or anyone else. And oftentimes when things are going well, there's not a lot of crying out to the Lord. It's in the difficult times where we realize, you know, man, I, I need God. I need God in the good times and I need God in the bad times. We looked at the word test, and we often refer to the word test. We might also use the word trial. We're going to add a third one today. Sometimes tests and trials are also referred to as storms. Jesus used that illustration himself in Matthew uh, at the end in chapter 7. He's summarizing that message that he shared. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. But he summarized it by describing these two guys that built their houses, one on the sand, one on the rock. The houses looked the same. Everything looked good until the storms came. And the storms, not only do they test us and grow us and mature us, but we learned that storms also reveal a lot about us. They reveal what our foundation is. Have you been building your life on your own foundation on the sand? You're building it, building it, building it, doing your own thing, doing it your own way. But you, you might look and go, look at my house. It looks just as good as yours. I know, but when the test comes, we're going to find out what the foundation is. Because you can build a beautiful house, and on the wrong foundation, it's going to be wiped away. We just had someone last night. They moved here uh, to Colorado. They came up with a testimony. They're visiting. I mean, they're part of the church here, but they were visiting New Jersey, and and one of my friends there had sent a message to say hi to me. So they came up, uh, and she delivered the message to me, say, Pastor so-and-so said hi. Well, that's awesome. But we started to talk again of why they're here. Because they said they're from New Jersey. And what brought them here was Sandy, the storm. They came in and wiped their house out. Because they, and they dug through. And she was funny. She gave me this illustration. She said, yeah, you know, before the storm, somebody knocked our mailbox down and we had to replace it. So we went out and got a new mailbox, got a new post. And as we were digging, there was about this much of solid rock. And then when you pass that much of solid rock, it was all sand underneath. And all those houses along, it was all built on sand. And the only way you could find out is whether it could withstand a storm. Well, the picture of that is very clear. But the spiritual part of that is this. The spiritual part is very simple. Jesus said this. Are you building your house on the sand? This is how you know. You hear what God has to say, but you don't do it. That's building your house. And the house represents your life. So you look at your life right now, you, you want, well, how do I know if I'm building on the sand? Well, it's very simple, Jesus said. If you hear what I say and do it, you're building your house on a rock. That's a solid foundation. You're building your house on the way that God desires. You're building your life on the precepts of God. You're building your life on the word of God. You're building your life on the desire and the commands of God. That's a house on a foundation that's going to withstand a few storms. Because the two houses face the same storm. And here's the thing. It's not an unusual picture in the Bible. Here's the thing. The Bible says that the house that was built on sand could not withstand the storm. Not only could it not withstand the storm, but the house fell and great was its fall. Why? Because it was built on a faulty foundation. Some storms are sent into our lives to teach us our foundation. 
This is Abounding Grace, and Pastor Ed Taylor is our Bible teacher and the pastor of Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. You can hear these radio programs on our website anytime of the day or night at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Another way to grow on the go is by downloading our app. Search for Ed Taylor. And we have a couple of podcasts as well. You can listen to Abounding Grace and Lead to Serve wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, By the way, that's Lead, the number two, Serve. In it, Pastor Ed discusses the value of servant leadership. Today, we want to tell you about Pastor Ed's book, God's Help for the Troubled Heart. I don't have to convince you that people are suffering in large measure all around us. And maybe that someone is you. With a war going on, rising inflation, gas prices through the roof, and a virus that doesn't seem to go away, many are anxious and greatly troubled. Well, God wants to meet you right where you're at. And this book will remind you that Jesus will bring you through your trial, and you're not alone. Request a copy of God's Help for the Troubled Heart today. Maybe order an extra one, too, and give it to a friend. We'll send it to you for a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. Call 877-30-GRACE. You can also order it at calvaryco.store on the web. And please remember that your gifts help to make this program possible. We look to the Lord to provide for us. If He's leading you to take an active role in the ministry through either a one-time gift or ongoing support, please visit us online, aboundinggraceradio.com, or call 877-30-GRACE. Well, that's going to do it for today. Come back tomorrow when Pastor Ed Taylor will again open the Gospel of John in search of abounding grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.